if you will turn with me to John chapter 11, so that we can read through the passage in which today's teaching is based. I'll be reading various portions of chapter 11, verses 1 through 44. Verse 1. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. We're going to skip to verse 14. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already, already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. Skip to verse 32. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I, see, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. And this is God's word. We're in an interesting period of Lent. We're looking at the I am claims of Jesus. Jesus says, I am the bread. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. And this chapter, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Chapter 11 marks about halfway 
through the gospel according to John. But here's the thing. In chapters 1 and 10, 1 to 10, that word love appears seven times. Seven times in chapters 1 through 10. And chapters 1 through 10 cover the first three years of Jesus' ministry. But that latter half, beginning chapter 11, that latter half of the gospel according to St. John covers the last moments of Jesus' life. And the word love appears over 50 times. What does that teach us? That the more you come to know Jesus, the more you learn about Jesus Christ, the more you learn about his love. The more you learn about the mission of Jesus, the more you learn about the power of Jesus, the more you learn about his love. Jesus' love is rich. It's the richest. Jesus' love is powerful. It's the most powerful. And this passage teaches that the claim of Jesus, that he is the resurrection and the life, it's what separates Jesus from every other religious leader, every other faith in the history of the world. What do we learn from the claim? There are three things. We learn about his wisdom, we learn about his comfort, and we learn about his power. Jesus' wisdom, Jesus' comfort, and Jesus' power. First, we're going to look at his wisdom. In verse 3, the text says that Jesus loved Lazarus. So why does he wait? Because the text doesn't really explain why he waits, in a sense. Jesus loved Lazarus, and yet he waited. Lazarus was a close friend of Jesus, and yet he was sick. And so in verses 5 through 7, Jesus waits two days before beginning the journey, and the journey itself takes two days. So Lazarus by then has been dead for about four days to go back in Jerusalem as Jesus goes to see him. By verse 14, Lazarus is dead. But Jesus says, it's for your sake so that you may believe. That means that even in sickness, even in death, Jesus is always processing through a lens of deeper reality. All we see is what's visible, our visible reality. People dying, people die, there's suffering all around the world. And yet Jesus processes suffering and processes even death through a lens of deeper reality beneath the visible reality. What does that teach us? First, it teaches us our state in sin. Our state in sin. Sin is deadly. Sin's like a disease. That should hit home right now. Sin is like a disease that has no earthly cure. Sin is like a contagion that gets us all. Remember Shakespeare's Hamlet? It's one of my favorite books. Hamlet teaches us that sin is like a disease, and it spreads to everyone. It starts with the king. The king Claudius goes, transfers to Hamlet's mother and queen, Gertrude. It transfers to Hamlet himself. It transfers even to Yorick the jester who's dead, whose skull Hamlet is peering to. It transfers to his friend. It doesn't matter if you're a friend or an enemy. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. It transfers to Polonius. It transfers to his love, Ophelia. Sin gets everybody. That's what Shakespeare is trying to tell us here. You cannot escape the deadliness of sin. You cannot escape the contagion of sin. You cannot escape the loss of sin and the pain of sin. In sin, we're all like Lazarus. In verse 1, Lazarus is sick. In verse 11, he's asleep. In verse 14, he's dead. And like Lazarus, we're all in the tomb. The sum of Satan's power, the enemy's power, is death. Death is his greatest power. Death is his greatest weapon. That's the first thing it teaches us. But the second thing it teaches us is that sometimes Jesus will wait, even in the face of death, Jesus will wait before our prayers are answered. Yes, he loves Lazarus, 
but he waits. And he waits until Lazarus dies. Why? He says it's for our sakes, to mature us, for your sake, so that you would believe. That means that the love of Christ is going to include trouble. That means that the love of Jesus may involve suffering, suffering for all of us. The love of Jesus may involve some discomfort for you personally, for you individually, for the church as a whole. In verse 36, there are people, they, as you read verse 36, they say, wow, look at how much he loved Lazarus. But then some people doubted and said, well, if he really loved Lazarus, why couldn't he heal him? They say, they say what a lot of people today say. It's the, it's the thing that keeps people from coming into the church. That if God is so powerful and so wise and so strong and so loving, why is there any suffering at all? If God could stop it, why doesn't he stop it? But this text teaches us you never doubt his love. That, that it may be painful for him. He weeps. But he delays for a reason. Lazarus is sick. Jesus loves him. Our lives may seem like it's over, but that means that even more, Jesus is present with us. He weeps. You know, it's natural to think that when things go bad, it's because of something that we've done, or that if things go well, it's because of something that we've done. It's natural to think that if we do something bad, bad things could happen to us, or if that we do something good, that something good should happen for us. But the cross of Jesus blows away all that thinking, blows away that paradigm completely. Why? Because Jesus Christ was perfect. He lived the perfect life. He wasn't just a good person. He was perfect. He was sinless, and yet he died the worst death. He died a horrible death, and he actually lived in suffering all of his life. That means that the answer to the meaning of suffering, why it happens, is way more sophisticated than our science, is way more sophisticated than, and way more complex than we could ever think. On one hand, like Lazarus, we are hopeless, we are helpless, we are dead in our sin. And, and Jesus weeps for us, but on the other hand, Jesus waits. Jesus delays. Not because we're not in control, but because he's in absolute control. That there's meaning in all this. That there's a wisdom in this. That there's a truth in this. That there's intentionality to this. The next time your prayers aren't answered, it's not because, you have to remember, it's not because Jesus is not in control, it's because he's in control, and yet he does this for your good, for your sake, he says, for your good, because of his wisdom. We need to trust that wisdom. Without suffering, we'll never be able to see that we're like Lazarus, that we're not just dying, we're dead. We're dead in our sins. We are helpless and hopeless without Jesus in our lives. We're not able to see how fine our, our lives are. We're not able to see that we're not in control. We were never in control in the first place. You know, control in life is an absolute illusion, but we try to have control over everything, don't we? We try to gain control. Every decision we make, every moment of our lives, our lives are oftentimes mapped out as if we have some kind of control in our lives. We don't factor in sickness. We don't factor in something like this. We never would have conceived something like this going on in our city today, in our lives today. 
We assume we're going to stay young forever, and when we start aging, we try to control that. We try to do what we can to look young, to stay young. We try to gain power and wealth as a way of shielding ourselves from, from any type of need, and yet we realize something as, like this shows us how desperately in need we are. We try to do everything that we can to avoid suffering, to prevent suffering when we can't. And by trying to do that, we're actually resisting God's plan for us, for our sake. He says it's for his glory, for his son's glory, for God's son's glory, for God's glory and for our sakes. And we miss that. It's easy to miss that. The death of Lazarus teaches us that because of sin, we die, and it's final. Today we're taught, you know, to embrace death. Death is your friend. Come to grips with death. It's a natural part of life. Then why does Jesus, the creator of the world, the sustainer of the world, why does he cry? Then why does he cry if it was just natural? Why does he cry if it's something that we should be embracing? The Bible, it's because the Bible never teaches that death is natural. The Bible never teaches that death is your friend. Death is evil. Death is the enemy. Death is horrible. Death intends to chase you, pursue you, beat you down. You ever watch No Country for Old Men, that movie? It's the man in black. He's literally in black, and he's just pursuing, constantly pursuing. And anyone he comes in touch with, in touch with he gets rid of. He executes. That's death. It's going to chase you, pursue you, beat you down until you're gone. Look at Jesus. Jesus is God. Jesus is all-powerful. He's all-wise. He knows he doesn't even flinch. And yet he still weeps at the death of Lazarus. Look at his love. Look at his compassion. Here's a man who has all the power to stop it, and he doesn't, and so he weeps. He chooses not to for a purpose and meaning. So there must be meaning. There must be purpose. He still waits. He waits two days before he even starts his journey, before he goes to Lazarus. And here's why. It's because if he did rush, it's because if he did scramble, who would be in control? Whose agenda would he be following? Death would be in control. Death would be setting the agenda. But in verse 4, Jesus says, this sickness will not end in death. It's for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. That's his agenda. And so in saying that, he's saying, I am in control. Jesus will not bow to the urgency of death. Even with respect to his own life, he says, no one can take it from me. I lay it down on my own accord. I get to determine when I give myself up and in. And so he delays. He delays to the point where the human mind can no longer conceive God's faithfulness. You see, suffering is either going to make you more of a person because you recognize your limitations and you rest in God's power and his love, or it's going to make you less of a person because deep inside you think you're alone and you, and you need to fight. And so you resist God and you resist his agenda and your soul starts to corrode in bitterness and anger and you're continually suffering. It turns into a feedback loop of anger and suffering and distrust. But if you see why Jesus waited, you can see his wisdom. That will give you poise. It's going to lead you to trust him. Look at the wisdom of Jesus when he doesn't answer your prayers. The world has come in many ways to a standstill today. It's not because Jesus is not in control. Uh, there is no science 
there is no technology right now that, that can rationalize what's going on. So you have to go beyond science. You have to go beyond technology to even begin to understand or try to understand or rationalize what's going on. That is a question at the least of philosophy. We have to go not just to our, we have to go even deeper than our philosophy texts. You have to start looking at faith. What does that mean? Because if you come to faith in Jesus, a God that will not flinch in the urgency of death, it will bring you poise. Look at his poise. And yet you will see tremendous compassion. It doesn't make him a cold God. It doesn't make him a cold Savior. It doesn't make him a cold King. He still weeps. That makes him a compassionate King and a loving King. See how he loved Lazarus, they said. By the way, Mary and Martha, they, they're the ones who sent word to Jesus. Uh, and uh, Jesus still waited, you know. Uh, and they waited for him. They waited for Jesus. They said, the one that you love is sick. They didn't say, Jesus, the one that served you well is sick. They didn't say, Jesus, the one who obeyed is sick, so you need to come now. They waited too. They knew that Jesus loved them. They knew that Jesus loved Lazarus. Do you? Do you know that right now, in this period, in this moment, do you know and trust that Jesus loves you? Because if you do, you can trust him. You can trust his wisdom. Now, second point is, this also shows us Jesus' comfort. In verses 17 to 19, Jesus arrives, and, and many Jews, they come to comfort the family. It's an indication of the prominence of this family. They're known people in their area. But hearing that Jesus is coming, Martha goes out there ahead of time to meet him. And Jesus says in verse 23, your brother will rise again. And Martha responds in verse 24, yeah, he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. In other words, I know. I know that eventually death will be defeated. I know that this is not going to end in death ultimately. Death is going to lose. One day, everything that's painful, everything that's been lost, everything that's wrong, every injustice, death itself will be turned on its head. Martha trusts that. What Jesus says in verse 25 is remarkable. He says, you believe in the resurrection? I am the resurrection. I am that power over death. Death answers to me. I am the power over life, new life. It all rests in me. Where I am, death looks the other way. Death reverses. It's not just that last day. It's not just at the end times. I am the end, he says. Look at how many times in one verse, in verses, 20, sorry, in verses 25 to 26, look at how many times Jesus challenges Martha to believe. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. He, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? That's what he's asking. He's asking Martha, but he's really asking us, do you believe this? Why does he say that? It's because it doesn't take work to believe. If you have to try to believe, it's because you don't believe. Do you believe? Do you look to Jesus and place your trust in Jesus? That he is the resurrection and the life. That new life only comes through him. He says, place your trust in me. And when you die, you're not going to stay dead. Even if you die, you won't stay dead. You will rise again. All suffering, all pain will be swallowed up by me. You're even going to have a new body. Do you hate your body? 
You're even going to have a new life. You will rise again. You're going to be renewed. Do you hate your life? He says, I am the resurrection and the life. You will rise again into new life. That Greek word, life, is the word zoe. Jesus is saying, you know, when I give you new life, that means you're going to get a second chance at the same life that you have today. That means you're going to eat the same food. You're going to have the same job, have the same family. You're going to live in the same home someday. You're going to pay the same taxes. You're going to experience the same losses and have the same pain. Why would anybody want that? That's not what he's saying. He's talking about new life. He's talking about perfect life, perfect body. When we rise again, we're still going to have bodies, except it will be a glorified body. We're still going to have, uh, we're going to have glorified family. We're going to have jobs. We're going to have glorified jobs. Everything's going to be new. Now, you may say, but I messed up. I'm never going to recover. Lots of people they're afraid to let Jesus into their lives because they're afraid that knowing Jesus is going to decrease their options, decrease their potential, decrease their freedom, decrease their joy. But Jesus says, Martha, let me in. You're going to get a new life. You're going to have a new body even. In other words, I will increase your options and potential and freedom and joy. What does that mean for us right now? New life in Christ means what? Are you angry? You can be healed. Are you bitter? You can be softened. Are you distrusting of everybody around you? You can actually take risks to form deep relationships again. Are you confused? That means Jesus is the light of the world. Are you starving for something, for new life out there? Jesus says, I am the bread. You can be filled. Stop looking to try to stay young on your own, thinking that that's the solution. Stop fighting for power and control and wealth as a way to protect yourself. There is no protection, Jesus says, unless you come to me. I am the resurrection and the life. He doesn't say, I will be the resurrection. He doesn't say, I was the resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life. That means that right now, that new life is for you. You may be living in this same old body, and yet your lives can be completely new, so healed and healing that one day you will burst forth into a joy of knowing that you have a new body, a new life, and residing with God. It's what made Jesus' work on the cross very, very personal because it's for us. It's for you. Just like Lazarus, we were in the grave. Just like Martha and Mary, we're helpless. We see the tomb. We see the death. We see the suffering. Everybody's crying around us. Some live as if, uh, you know, we'll never be free from our past hurts or our shame or our regrets, our failures, our fears. We're never going to get past these things. Everybody has something that if if they just lose this thing, it's going to feel like death. If it's damaged, then you're going to be damaged. If it dies, then you're going to die. It feels like you've died. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. That means If you've lost something in me, you will find it. Only Jesus can say that. Only he can say, I will not just let death have the final say in your life. I'm going to give you new life. You will be free from your hurts. You can be free from your shame. You can be free from your guilt. Whatever it is, our sins, they may be many, but his mercy is more. You can be free from your regrets. You can be free from from, uh, your fear because he is our shepherd. He will protect us. We need to hear that again. We need to be reminded of that. Every day we're flooded with voices, whether it's the television, online. We're flooded with voices every day. 
but listen to the voice of the good shepherd. That was last week. Remember who he is. That even though he's standing in the graveyard, it's the safest place to be. We need to hear that. Martha says, I believe. Do you believe? Because if you do, what comfort is there when you believe? To know that Christ is in control. You know, when a child, when a child is afraid, the child instantly wakes up in his sleep and he realizes he's alone and in the dark. And that combination of being alone in the dark, he starts to wail. He's got no control. He loses it, literally loses it. So mom and dad, they blow out of bed. One of them runs over. They turn on the lights, and they say, don't be afraid. That's our father. Do you know that don't be, do not be afraid is one of the most widely used commands of God throughout the Bible? Do not be afraid. Mainly what he's saying is, I'm present. I'm here. And that kid, they, he knows. The moment he sees his parents, he knows he can go back to sleep. Why? Because mom is in control. Because dad is in control. Mom is bigger than his fears. His father is bigger than his fears. That child knows that mom and dad are present and he's safe. Now let's turn to Mary. In verse 32, she falls at Jesus' feet. In other words, what she's doing is she's humbling herself. She's putting herself in this undignified position. Today, you know, when we're suffering, people expect to coddle us. When we're suffering, we expect people to surround us and coddle us. You know, I know life is hard. I know life is rough. You know, I want you to hear me. I want you to see me. I want you to listen to me. There's this entitlement that grows in the midst of our sinfulness that bears, that, that forces us to turn inward. And what we do is we want people to just feed our neediness. Mary is in tremendous pain. Think about this. She just lost her brother. Everybody around her is crying. Her brother is in the grave. She is in pain, and yet she lowers herself. Jesus just walked two days your feet in the ancient times, because there are no, uh, pr- the kind of protection that we have over our feet today didn't exist back then. So walking through those ancient, dusty, dirty, trash-filled uh, roads, feet were considered the dirtiest part of our body in ancient times. And Mary is in pain, but look, there's no sense of entitlement. There's no power play with Mary. She doesn't act if God, as if God owes her. There are no demands. She sees Jesus, and Jesus He sees Mary, and he sees Mary and Martha hurting, and he sees their trust. They say, gosh, if you've been here, I know that my brother would have been okay. They trust. He's taken to the grave, verse 35. He cries, he's weeping. All around him there's mourning, and there's death, and there's corrosion, and there's rotting. He sees the death and the cost of sin and the toll that it's taking all around him. People are overwhelmed But he knew when Lazarus was sick. He knew that Lazarus was dead. And he still demonstrates poise. And he still demonstrates calm. All through those times. And yet here, in verse 35, Jesus completely loses it. Look at the heart of Jesus. All wise. Totally wise. All powerful. And yet... Look at his compassion. Look at his heart. Why does that happen? It's because when you love somebody, you're choosing to tie their happiness with your own. So you could have everything going well in your life, but if they're unhappy, you're unhappy. 
You could have all power, but if they're weak, you feel weak. You could be tremendously powerful and wealthy, but if they're poor or if they're hurting, you're poor. It's as if you're poor. You feel helpless. To love somebody is to tie our happiness and joy into their happiness and joy. As a parent, it's why you're never happy unless your child is safe. You're never satisfied until you, unless your child is happy. And that means you're no longer free. You are no longer free. Uh, you're no longer on your own ever again. Your life is interwoven into the happiness of somebody else, whether it's your spouse or your child. And that makes any suffering you go through worth it. You'll never understand that until you have children. You never understand that until you get married. What it means to say that any suffering we go through is worth it. So here's Jesus. He's looking at Lazarus' estate, and he's struck with pain, the pain of death, and he's weeping. You only weep for the things that you value most, for the things that you treasure. And what this teaches us is that Lazarus was treasured by Jesus. In fact, Lazarus means the one who is helped by God. That's the name. That's what the name means. Lazarus is Jesus' treasure. That means that Christians are treasured by Jesus. A Christian is shaped by that. On one hand, that should humble us because sin takes us to the grave and we're powerless. But on the other hand, that gives us tremendous confidence because we know that no matter our suffering, we are treasured by Jesus. So in verse 36, people see Jesus weeping and they remark how much Jesus must have loved Lazarus. But then some people start to remark that if he really loved Lazarus, he would have healed him just like he healed the blind man in chapter 9. And so in verse 38, Jesus is once more deeply moved by that. What does that mean? That on one hand, Jesus is hurting with us. When we're hurting, Jesus is hurting because his happiness, his joy is tied in with our happiness and our joy. And so when we're hurting, Jesus is hurting. But Jesus is even more moved when we doubt that love for us. He's moved by our grief, yes, but he's moved by our doubts. He's moved by our bitterness. That means you can go to Jesus and pray your disappointments. You can pray your anger. You can pray your your fears. You can pray your bitterness. You can pray your hurts. You can pray your doubts. You can pray your shame. You can pray your regrets. In Psalm 88, is one of the most interesting psalms in the entire Bible because all throughout the psalm, you just see a person who is just suffering and there's no redemptive value, it seems, at least face value. There's not, no part of that psalm where the psalmist is saying, yes, but I will worship you and I will praise you. He basically says, my life is terrible. My, I am suffering. There's nothing redeeming about my life. Why is it there? Why is it in the Bible? Why did God include it? Why did God write it? Because God hears us. He's moved when we doubt. He's moved when we're suffering, and he's moved when we doubt. Will you take your sorrows, take those fears, take that pain, take that hurt, and plunge it into the grace of God? Because if you do, you will find lasting comfort, lasting hope. Jesus weeps for you. He even weeps for your doubt. The last point is then his power. Lazarus rises again from the dead. Amazing power. No one expected Jesus to raise Lazarus from the dead. He prays to the Father, and the Father hears him. 
He calls Lazarus in verse 43, and Lazarus comes out of the grave because in John chapter 10, just one chapter before, he says, I call my sheep by name and I lead them out. It's amazing power, and yet it's only a minor miracle because think about this. Lazarus is going to die again. Lazarus is going to die again. And so this narrative has to be in the Bible because it points to a greater miracle. And Jesus says in John chapter 6, we will all be raised And so in order for Lazarus to leave the tomb, somebody's got to go in the tomb. In order for Lazarus to rise, somebody's got to fall. In order for Lazarus to live, somebody's got to die. And Jesus knows by entering into Jerusalem again, they said, they tried to stone you. You're going to go back? Jesus says, I must go back. Jesus knows that the moment he enters Jerusalem again, it's going to set the stage for what will happen to him on the cross. By coming back for his friend, by coming back for Lazarus, Jesus will not just risk being arrested and death. He will be arrested and he will die. And yet, look at his poise. He doesn't even flinch. It was his mission. There's no fear. You don't see worry. You just see his poise. In the face of death, angry people, they're in Jerusalem. There's tremendous pressure. There's weeping. There's doubt. He knows that that his disciples will abandon him. He knows that in the face of sin, the enemy, Satan, death, he's in the face of death, and yet he's totally calm. Look at the resilience of Jesus. Look at the resilient love of Jesus. Look at the gentleness of Jesus. Look at the counseling compassion of Jesus. You can have hope in that. You can have hope in that in the sacrificial courage of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is saying, for my friends, there is nothing I will not do. There's no barrier I wouldn't cross. There's no risk that I wouldn't face. I will sacrifice my life. I will die for my treasure. You are my treasure. I will die for you. That's what Jesus is saying here. And that's why we know that beyond every other religious leader, Beyond every just great teacher, Jesus supersedes every religious leader. And the Christian faith is unique because God didn't come down. The king of the universe didn't come down to teach. The king of the universe didn't come down to just be a religious leader. He came to replace us, to be in our place, to be our substitute. The night that he was betrayed, Jesus cries out, my soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. In other words, he's reflecting on everything that's about to happen to him on the cross, and he just loses it. He comes undone. He says, I'm torn apart. In this passage, he's totally calm, but on the cross, at Gethsemane, leading to the cross, Jesus Christ took the penalty that we deserved, and he dies. And on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's saying, what he's saying is, I have been waiting for you. I am mourning. I'm in pain. I'm suffering. Jesus is like that child. He says, I'm in the midst of darkness, the ultimate darkness. I'm in the midst of aloneness, the ultimate aloneness. I have everything to fear. I have every reason to fear because death is in front of me, And in this moment, death has control. I'm left for dead. I've been abandoned. I've been forsaken. 
You have turned your face from me. You've turned away from me. And so I'm suffering the ultimate pain, the ultimate sorrow, and I have no comfort, no relief. I've lost power. I've lost control. My God, my God. He's weeping. He's lost it. That's the Hebrew doublet. Anytime you see that, that means there's emotional content. There's great urgency. He's mourning. In other cases, in every other case, Jesus is poised in the face of death. But in Gethsemane and on the cross, he's just completely torn apart because the weight of God's wrath, and he was sensing it on Gethsemane, but now he's experiencing the weight of God's wrath, separation from God, the ultimate suffering. And yet he still calls God, my God. He's still trusting in his wisdom. In the end, before he dies, he says, into your hands I commit my spirit. That means that even in suffering, even in the midst of his own death, even in the midst of his mourning, even though he's torn apart, he still trusted. There was this underlying poise that sits even in the midst of the terror. You see that? Why? Jesus Christ was alone, so he would never be alone. Jesus Christ was forsaken by God so that we could be accepted by God. Jesus Christ was rejected by God so that we could experience the embrace of God. Jesus Christ became finite, became weak, so that we would rise again and be strong. Jesus Christ became empty, completely empty, so that we would have the fullness of that Zoe life that is promised by God, even in the midst of death. You may doubt God's love for you, but you would never doubt that God loved his own son. And yet, where did he send his son? He sent his son to die. And we say that he would die for his treasure. That means that he treasures his people. When you look to the cross, do you see that you are treasured? Do you see that you are not forsaken? That in the midst of terror and fear, we can be poised and calm, even in the face of death. Because Jesus Christ on the cross, turned death on its head by dying. He took Satan's greatest weapon and used it to defeat death. Because through that death, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, death has been swallowed up in victory. And now death has no more. He says, where, O death, is your sting? You know, when you get stung, it's not the, the sting gives you a little pain, but it's the venom that kills you. He's saying, there may still be a sting, but there's no more venom. We cannot die. That's why we can wait. Even when it seems impossible, God hears us. We can go to God. We can go to our Father with everything. He knows anyway. He knows even our mourning. You can go to Him with every tear and every fear, every sorrow, every loss. You can go to Him. You can trust in Him. We all want to trust His power, but can you trust His wisdom? Because when you do, then you can experience his comfort. When you believe, you can believe that Christ has power over sin, over death, you will rise again. That makes death your enemy. But if you're a Christian, it's a defeated enemy. It's a defeated enemy because Jesus Christ is victorious over death. So as we respond in song today, and as we go into our next week, Let's remember Jesus Christ who is victorious over death by going to the grave so that we could come out of the grave. We have been lifted out. Let's place our trust in him as we gather together in small enclaves of community and, uh, and await God as we come to him. Let's, let's pray together.